Hi, I'm Robin Anir, and this is my podcast, Nothing on TV, in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from mostly the 19th century, a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Newspapers were pretty much it, and there was plenty in them to get excited about. Today's episode of Nothing on TV is part one of The Marble Man. Parts one and two are both available for listening now, so you can go straight on to part two if you wish, but together they run to about an hour, and I didn't want to scare you off. I plan to keep episodes mostly to around 20 to 30 minutes, but this one would not be contained. Just listen to this from page two of the Bathurst Free Press and Mining Journal on Tuesday, 21st of May. 1889. Orange was thrown into a state of credulous excitement on Wednesday morning by the wild rumour circulating about town that a man's body, completely petrified, had been found. It is alleged it was taken from the marble quarry at Kalula. Now, Orange here is not a fruit, but the New South Wales town of Orange, 250 kilometres inland from Sydney. The Maitland Mercury and Hunter River General Advertiser of the same date put more flesh on the story. And let me just say here that newspapers usually acquired such ungainly names as a result of the amalgamation of rival titles, in this case, the Maitland Mercury and the Hunter River General Advertiser. Anyway, here's a report from the Mercury and Advertiser headed The Petrified Man. A phenomenal discovery has been made at a marble quarry, 10 miles from Orange, which gives plainest possible proofs that the body of a man has been petrified into a solid block of marble. The block was found by Mr Sala, who owns and works the quarry, and is now in possession of Dr Souter of Orange, who is making an examination with a view to arrive at some rational conclusion. The figure is the exact form of a human being standing 5 feet 9 inches high. The head is perfect, with the exception that it shows unmistakable signs of having been scalped previous to burial. The trunk, including the sexual organs and legs, is intact, the ribs and muscles being plainly visible. The two arms are missing, as are also two toes on one foot and one on the other, but the remainder of the toes, with the toenails, show as plainly as possible. The discovery is exciting the greatest curiosity. The discoverer of the petrified man, or the marble man as he came to be known, was a Mr. G. F. Sala. That's S-A-L-A. He had first cropped up in the local press six months earlier, in November 1888, when the Windsor and Richmond Gazette ran an item promoting an earlier discovery of his of pure white, grey and rich claret marble. Sala had made big claims for this marble, namely that in quality it equalled or even eclipsed any marble elsewhere produced in the world. And that item in the Gazette had further claimed that he was brother to the great journalist Mr George Augustus Sala. Now to digress for a moment, George Augustus Sala, the quarryman's alleged brother, was a popular London journalist, best known for his exposés of Bohemian and Backstreet London. In 1885, he'd made a lecture tour of the Australian colonies, performing to packed halls and sending back reports of all that he saw for publication in the London Daily Telegraph. And it was Sala, the journalist, who in one of those dispatches first used the term Marvellous Melbourne, with which that city still flatters itself today. Now, it seems pretty certain that Sala, the journalist, had no brother who could credibly tally with Sala of Kalula which might reasonably cast suspicion on the quarryman's other claims, specifically regarding the petrified man. Let me just leave that thought with you as we turn back to our story. 
By the end of May 1889, so within a couple of weeks of its discovery, the petrified man was on display in a shop in Castlereagh Street, Sydney, attracting large numbers of curious persons who paid two shillings a head to see him. That two shillings was equal to about $15 in today's money. There it lies, wrote the Daily Telegraph's reporter, stretched out in a plain deal box like a pauper's coffin, the toenails as distinct as possible, and a bit of bone sticking out where one of the arms has been cut off. Several medical men who have seen it, and one in particular who placed a naked boy beside it for purposes of comparison, insist that the anatomy of the stone is irreproachable. But the sign at the door in Castlereagh Street, announcing the petrified human body or ancient sculpture, signalled that an animated controversy was in progress concerning the origins of the marble man. You see, Dr Souter, the medical man in orange, whom Sala had first approached to verify his discovery, had quickly arrived at the rational conclusion that it was not a petrifaction but the work of the chisel. And Mr C.S. Wilkinson, a geological surveyor who examined it on behalf of the Minister for Mines, agreed, dismissing it as a piece of rude carving. So, the backers of the marble man, that is, Sala, his son Edward, and William Bryden, their partner in the Kalula Quarry, put a spin on their discovery's origin story that allowed for the possibility of its being an ancient sculpture so ancient as to have become embedded in natural rock. The other side of the controversy was led by a Sydney physician, Charles McCarthy, who risked his professional reputation by insisting that the marble figure was an authentic petrified man. And he wasn't the only one. In a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald, Luigi del Vescovo, an Italian-trained sculptor of long experience, argued for the impossibility of carving such a figure without the marble breaking, particularly since the left leg contained what we sculptors know as a hair, that is a flaw in the formation of the stone. Another who defended the marble man's authenticity was a William Lovegrove who in his letter to the Herald speculated that the figure was the petrified corpse of a runaway convict as suggested by one leg being slightly thinner than the other, possibly, he said, the effects of leg irons. It seems to me probable, wrote Lovegrove, that being caught in a thunderstorm he lay down under an overhanging ledge on his back and went to sleep. The storm of rain loosening the earth above him, it fell upon him and hermetically sealed him up. The water charged with lime was injected through the body and the petrifaction became complete. And, he went on, if anyone doubts the possibility of this process taking place in a short time, geologically speaking, he could show them a specimen of wood that in the course of just 50 years had undergone complete petrifaction. If Lovegrove's theory sounds implausible, one of the Herald's own journalists took an even wilder run with the silly stick, reporting that one observant paleontologist, it is whispered, and that phrase, it is whispered, was a sure sign of invention, had counted the marble man's prominent ribs and noticed with natural elation that one was missing. The Cumberland Argus and fruit growers advocate took up the same stick and ran a lap with it, noting that an orchardist in Toon Gabby, Victoria, had just found a remarkable specimen of petrifaction in the shape of what he considers to be a Harvey's russet apple, found a few inches under the soil. Dr McCarthy, who, you'll recall, championed the marble man's bona fides, has not seen the apple in question. If he did, no doubt he would be able to identify it as one of the apples that Adam brought with him out of the Garden of Eden. This was all meant in jest, yet the dispute over the marble man's origins and authenticity was in earnest. Darwin's theory of evolution had been around for just 30 years, remember, and its implications were still being ironed out. Well, let's face it, the same can be said even today. 
In scientific circles, let alone among your average newspaper readers, the sense of what was plausible, evolution-wise, was in those days pretty much boundless. Reported finds of petrified humans were no uncommon thing in the second half of the 19th century. As early as 1862, Samuel Clemens, a newspaper reporter in Virginia City, Nevada, later he'd be better known as Mark Twain, had noted the petrifaction mania to which he gleefully added with his own hoax report of a stone mummy found in the mountains. He described the figure in intricate detail right down to the position of the hands, one of which appeared to be thumbing its nose. The most famous of the petrified men was the Cardiff giant, dug up by well diggers, no, not in Wales, but in the town of Cardiff in upstate New York in 1869. Even now, people tend to associate the Cardiff giant with the showman, P.T. Barnum, whose Trump-worthy maxim, there's a sucker born every minute, was supposedly prompted by the Cardiff giant's popularity as a sideshow marvel. In fact, the giant's owners, who themselves put the three-metre gypsum figure on show, refused to sell or lease it to Barnum, whereupon he commissioned an exact plaster replica which he put on display in New York City. And it was one of the owners of the real Cardiff giant who, hearing the success of Barnum's knockoff, made the sardonic observation that there's a sucker born every minute. By the way, I hope that when I said the real Cardiff giant just now, you were able to hear the inverted commas around that word real. Besides the Cardiff giant, there was the Colorado Stone Man, also known as the Solid Muldoon. He had the stump of a tail and was hailed as the missing link. There were petrified men found in New Hampshire. And further afield, a four-metre-tall stone figure was dug up on the northeast coast of Ireland in 1876, not far from the Giant's Causeway. This Giant's Causeway is a mass of basalt columns leading into the sea, and according to legend, it's all that remains of a causeway built in the Age of Myth by the giant Finn McCool, so that he could cross the channel to fight his Scottish counterpart. Naturally, the petrified man was claimed to be the actual Finn McCool. He was exhibited in Dublin and toured the north of England, but then, following a dispute over his ownership, he ended up stranded in the lost property depot of one of the big London railway stations. And there he remained, stored in a coffin-like box for more than 60 years, until finally, during the Blitz, he was broken up and used as filling for a bomb crater. You'll find photos of some of these petrified men at my show page, including one of the Marble Man and his prominent ribcage. Salah had that photo taken when his discovery was lying in state at Dr Souter's rooms in Orange. Even many who believed it to be the work of a man rather than of nature were impressed by its execution. The Hobart Mercury Sydney correspondent wrote that anatomists and sculptors are at war on the subject, but upon one point they are all agreed, viz, that if the image be a work of art, it is the production of a master hand. Sala agreed, but denied that hand was his. In a letter to the Daily Telegraph, a letter written on his behalf, he said, due to his imperfect grasp of English, he insisted, I am not a sculptor. And all I can say is that if the figure is a sculpture, it must have been done by a most clever artist and one claiming much more ability than myself. About a month after the Marble Man came to light, a report, a damning report you'd have to say, was presented to the New South Wales Parliament concerning the Marble Man's origins. The government, it seems, had instructed the local police to have the matter thoroughly inquired into. Accordingly, Sub-Inspector Ford based at Orange, went about the district retracing the Marble Man's trail and taking down eyewitness testimony. His report, dated 10th of June 1889, began, I have the honour to inform you that, having made very careful inquiries about the so-called petrified man, I am thoroughly convinced that the marble figure was made at Croker's old public house at Cowflat by G.F. Sala. 
Ford's report went on to detail how, about five months earlier, a piece of white marble, weighing about a tonne, was delivered by Joseph Bell from his cow flat quarry to the old public house where Sala and his son were living. And talk about service, Bell actually deposited the length of marble half in and half out of the Sala's kitchen door. Pretty soon it disappeared inside and the window was bricked up. And Edward Sala, the son, who was about 14, an acute lad, said one witness, kept a lookout from the stables and would whistle if anyone approached. Nonetheless, several witnesses claimed to have seen or heard the marble man taking shape in the back kitchen of Croker's old public house. To give himself more light to work by, Sala had removed a sheet of iron from the kitchen roof, and more than one of the locals managed to climb up and get a look inside. Alfred Hammond, a neighbour who heard chiselling work going on all day and into the night, said that Sala once told me he'd been a sculptor in Italy and that he could sculpture anything. Also, said Hammond, I saw him make some scagliola, that's an artificial form of marble, and he made no secret of this. On the contrary, said Sala, the making of scagliola was the reason for his secrecy at Cow Flat. Those few who know the secret never allow anyone else to look on, he said, making it sound like alchemy. Anyhow, when Hammond eventually, by mere chance, he said, spied the shape of a marble figure through the kitchen door, he went home and told my wife Sala was making a woman to sleep with him. And the Cowflat schoolmaster, William Gilfoyle, told Sub-Inspector Ford that he had ordered, at Sala's request, a hundredweight of nitric and sulfuric acid from a Sydney supplier for the purpose of erasing chisel marks from stone. Those who knew anything about marble had said from the start that there was no way the white marble figure could have come from Kalula, where the stone was mottled a distinctive claret red. But Cowflat is about 70 kilometres from Orange, where the marble man was first put on display, that's a long way to cart a heavy stone figure. Sub-Inspector Ford, though, traced the route along rough back roads by which the sailors had driven their hired wagonette carrying a long wooden box that looked like a coffin. The press crowed. The truth, which was hidden from the learned, said the South Australian Register, was revealed unto the policeman as the reward of vigilant observation, and the scientists of Sydney who professed their faith in the fossil are now in Queer Street and the Sydney Mail marvelled that there were actually men, esteemed, learned in our community, who asseverated over and over again that the thing could be nothing else than a fossil or a petrifaction. And those learned men, or some of them, would continue to asseverate thus. Dr McCarthy was calling for a section, or a slice, to be cut off the marble man, to see if the outline of bones or organs could be seen, like the tree rings found inside petrified wood. One newspaper went further and called for a coroner's inquest, then we shall see what the fellow is made of. At last, the enterprising proprietors agreed to let McCarthy make a partial dissection of the marble man's right shoulder, which, the doctor would tell the press, revealed the margin of the bone as well as the line of the soft tissues. I have fought this battle very strenuously and honestly, said Dr McCarthy, and been subjected to much public discomfiture. Now, though, he had forced the truth in the face of overwhelming odds. Hmm. We'll see. By this time, around the third week of June, the marble man had been sold by his discoverers for £500. The new owners planned to recoup their investment by exhibiting the petrified man or ancient sculpture all over the colonies. 
A wealthy New South Wales squatter was the majority shareholder, but the impresario of the outfit was Harry Stockdale, a bushman and amateur anthropologist who had a famed collection of curios in the shape of Aboriginal artefacts which he'd acquired on expeditions into regions as remote as the Kimberley. First stop on the Marble Man's tour was Melbourne, where, however, he was promptly seized by the sheriff in lieu of monies owed by Stockdale under a long-standing court order. Returning to Sydney, Stockdale kept the show running by announcing that the Marble Man's authenticity had been further proved by the leading geologists of Victoria, who drilled a hole through the sole of his foot and found a composition of 50% bone. Much later, Stockdale would write, We would have made tons more money if we'd allowed the doctors to saw our limestone friend in half, but my partners wouldn't allow it. We would have hired the town hall and filled it to overflowing for the post-mortem. Notice he said, our limestone friend? A slip of the pen, I suppose. Back in the town of Orange, and 500 pounds richer, G.F. Sala was tussling in the courts with Joseph Bell, the cow-flat quarryman. First, Bell took Sala to court for the unpaid expense of his board and lodging at Cow Flat. Then, Sala charged that Bell had threatened him with violence. Here's where we learn Sala's full name, Giuseppe Fabrizio Sala. On the stand, he gave his profession as mineralogist. It seems that back when the Marble Man first came to light, Bell had confronted Sala about his debt, and when Sala fobbed him off, Bell had shaped up to him saying, although you're a big man, an 18 stone weight... Come down and I'll take a few rounds out of you. Bell's lawyer asked Sala, I hear you're a military man, to which he replied, Yes, and if any man asks me to fight, I will take a fight at any time. The magistrates dismissed the charge against Bell as frivolous. Now you remember the Herald reporter who spun the fanciful story of the marble man's lopsided rib cage? Ultimately, he discounted his own rumour. After all, if this were really, as he put it, the father of our race, Wouldn't his spare rib, the petrified Eve, have turned up in the same vicinity? Well, guess what? She did. A petrified woman was brought to Sydney in August, three months after her marble mate. She too, it was claimed, had come from the quarry at Kalula, courtesy of Mr. Sala and Bryden, and according to the press, they say they found the female at the same time, but had kept the matter quiet until they disposed of the man. Like the marble man, the petrified woman was put on show in Castle Ray Street at premises that advertised mangling done here. A report in the Sydney Echo described how she lay on a bed of red-hued sawdust. She herself was magenta in colour, which was at least in keeping with the character of Kalula marble, and was of spare build, about five feet tall, but with her knees tightly drawn up. Her face was flattened and her arms stretched down by her sides, with one hand open and the other clenched. From the rough surface of the stone, the reporter speculated that the woman must have been a leper. Press interest in the marble woman petered out pretty quickly. But the following May, we're now in 1890, Giuseppe Sala produced another marble man, this one in a crouching position. He was exhibited in orange with young Edward Sala selling tickets at the door. A reporter from Bathurst paid a visit and noticed that, as well as the new marble man, a number of fossils were on display, resembling human hands and feet and limbs of other animals. Next day, he was given a guided tour of the Kalula marble quarry and saw fragments of the petrified horse, which apparently the latest marble man had been riding when he was dug out. That's why he seemed to be crouching. There were enormous leg bones and jaw bones lying around, as well as feet of animals that must have had claws like a cat. The reporter also picked up, 
or dug up several parts of another petrified woman, a head, a hand, and one full breast with a very large nipple. But most extraordinary of all was a partially excavated whale, about 30 feet, say 10 metres in length, complete with open jaws, humpback, ribs and tail. Each successive spade of earth removed exposed some other fossil. Some of them were exhibited at Bathurst soon afterwards, but that seems pretty much to have marked the last of the marvels to emerge from the quarry at Kalula, and an end to the story, you might think. But you'd be wrong. That's the end of part one of The Marble Man. You can find part two in iTunes now, or if you're subscribed to Nothing on TV, it's already in your podcast feed. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. Nothing on TV is produced by my long-time literary agent and muse, the enigmatic Mrs Bradley. She's an enigma, I suspect, even to herself. You can find more episodes on iTunes. Why not subscribe while you're there and have fresh episodes of Nothing on TV appear like magic in your podcast feed? Visit my show page, robinanear.com slash nothingontv, or just Google Nothing on TV for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There you can send me an email and you'll also find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you find what you're looking for on Trove and generally to delve into its marvels. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anear. Talk to you next time.